You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Uh, well, today we're going to be in 1 Peter 4, so we're going to cover verses 1 through 11, uh, 1 Peter 4, and um, in, the, in the commentary that we have out at the book table that we've recommended in a number of your reading, Juan Sanchez's commentary, uh, he, in this section, suggests a thought experiment. He offers a thought experiment, and this is it. He said, imagine someone who knows absolutely zero about Christianity. They don't know the religion. They don't know the name of Jesus. They don't know anything. Imagine them coming to the U.S. to study Christianity for three months, and this is what they do. They go to big Christian conferences. They visit Christian churches. They watch Christian TV. They listen to Christian music, and they just sort of immerse themselves in pop Christianity uh, in, our, in our country for three months. At the end of that three months, they then devote one month for the first time in their lives to reading the New Testament. They read the entire New Testament. And his thought experiment is this. At the end of that four-month period, with only exposure to American popular Christianity, then reading the New Testament, what do you think their thought would be? Would they scratch their head and say, what is going on? For the New Testament makes it clear that walking with Christ is hard, difficult, challenging. Now, the promise of the New Testament as well is that there is joy in his strength to persevere, but it is a life of difficulty. What would they think? And then he turns to us, the reader, and says, what do you think? Christianity is all about. Look at this quote from his book. He says, after telling that thought experiment, he says, what view of Christianity do you have? What do you do with biblical statements such as, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. Or the teaching that we are heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, Romans 8, 17. Maybe you have a favorite scripture verse on a magnet on your refrigerator or in a frame on a wall in your home. And I predict it is not. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians 1, 29. What do you do with these verses? Is it possible that Christians in the West have drunk so deeply from the well of materialism, consumerism, and prosperity that we do nothing with them except to gently, quietly ignore them or apply them to our brothers and sisters who face martyrdom elsewhere while quietly thanking God that it isn't us. It's a challenging thought, isn't it? Well, today, in the passage we're looking at, Peter is going to, I believe, through the Holy Spirit's uh, power, as he penned this scripture, he's going to prepare us for suffering. Now, these people were already suffering, but he's going to prepare us for suffering by really sharing two things with us. One is that we are called to suffer, and secondly, that we are called to the church. 
We're called to suffer and we're called to the church. And this really starts with having the right expectation of what our life is supposed to be like. And then secondly, building our lives with others who share the same uh, new life that we do in Jesus. So we'll read verses 1 through 6, called to suffer, and then we'll read uh, verses 7 through 11 after that. So let's listen to the reading of God's glorious word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffers for do, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Well, Peter makes it clear here, called to suffer, that Christians will suffer, and he charges us to embrace suffering by arming ourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ, who he says in verse 1, suffered in the flesh. Now, Jesus' suffering was unique. Um, he suffered uh, for us. He suffered as a substitute in our place. So Jesus' suffering uh, involved making atonement for our sins. So we don't arm ourselves with that mindset. We're not atoning for anyone else's sins, including our own, through our suffering. We don't, our atonement comes through Jesus' suffering. But we are called to suffer with him, not to earn our forgiveness, but we suffer with him in our calling as his people in this world. Fundamentally, our identity is those who are in Christ or with Christ, united with Christ. And so we, as his people, have a calling to embrace his suffering, to suffer for his namesake in the world. We're to be armed or prepared with that kind of thinking. This command, this idea, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, this command, arm yourself, prepare yourself with the same kind of thinking. Jesus who suffered, think in the same way, expect the same thing. This, this command sharply challenges us. It challenges us to our core. It is a wake-up call. David Helm, in his commentary on 1 Peter, wrote this, In one sense, when Peter calls us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, he is saying, Beloved, grow up. Get the mind of Christ. Become a person of resolve. Be prepared. If you have been united to him by faith, you will need to identify with him in his suffering. This is just not a popular message People aren't just gathering in droves for this message, but it is the message of the New Testament. There is a link between Christ's suffering in the world and our suffering as his representatives in the world. 
Now, we're going to see here in just a second, the kind of suffering they were experiencing was persecution. And we're not to look for persecution. I don't believe we're to invite persecution. I don't believe we're to pray for persecution. But we are to expect it, and we are to embrace it according to verse 1. Now, when he says, arm yourself with the same mind, he makes this rather curious statement where he says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh, verse 1, has ceased from sin. A curious statement. Does, does that mean that if we suffer, we no longer sin? Well, of course not. Nowhere in the New Testament does it teach that we cease from all sin prior to our death or prior to the return of Christ. So it doesn't mean that. What, what does it mean? Well, I love how the ESV study Bible, and if you're looking for something to put on your Christmas list, if you don't have a study Bible, uh, get the ESV study Bible because it's, it's brief, short explanations of scripture are often helpful. And on this verse, it says, Peter's point is that when believers are willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin is severed in their lives. When believers are willing to suffer, there is a severing in the nerve center of sin in their lives. Why is that? Well, if we resolve to follow Jesus, no matter what the cost, that is a turning away from sin. And when we embrace Christ, when we embrace his suffering with Christ, then we are embracing dependence upon him. When we say, Lord, I am willing to suffer for you, and I am actually embrace suffering for your sake with you, in union with you, that is an act of dependence on Jesus. That is an act of repentance from sin, and it positions us to walk in new life. It positions us to walk in holiness. Verse 2, he says, we are no longer living in human passions, but we are now living for the will of God. Do you see that? I, 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 so as, uh, as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The willingness to suffer for Jesus is a turning away from former passions and turning towards the will of God. And that is the sort of suffering that these people are experiencing. They are experiencing suffering because they are turning from their former passions to follow the will of God. And that is bringing resistance into their life. That is creating pressure in their life. That is creating rejection in their lives. And this is part of following Christ. He says that, uh, that these first-generation Christians, these are new believers, first-generation Christians, that they used to live in a flood of debauchery, is what he says, a flood of debauchery. That was their old life. A debauchery is like excessive, extreme sensuality, excessive indulgence, usually linked to uh, alcohol or uh, sex or some kind of extreme indulgence. We're going to see where someone really doesn't have their wits about them, uh, where someone is not thinking clearly. We're going to see, he talks about having self-control. So there's an absolute, utter loss of self-control, and one just sort of uh, goes after their passions is an escape from life, ultimately. Well, look how he describes their life before, verses 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, and he means unbelievers, uh, want to do. Living in, this is where they used to live, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, 
orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So, this is how you used to live and you no longer want to live this way and so they're surprised when you no longer will join them, your family and friends. There's a lot of talk about how dark our culture is and sometimes, our culture is dark, no doubt, but sometimes we're rather myopic to think that you know, this is the worst life's ever been. I mean, the world that they lived in, you read Corinth, and uh, here he's writing to Christians in uh, what would be modern-day Turkey, but it was called Asia Minor at the time. I mean, this is probably pretty intense to be saying, okay, look, this is what everybody needs to avoid. You know, what are the big temptations? So when they talk to the big temptations at their church, what's the big temptations, big temptations of their culture? It's don't go to the drinking party and the orgy. So it's pretty intense culture, I would say, pretty dark culture that they lived in. And so they're, not, they're sort of not living that way anymore, and uh, now they're following Jesus. And their previous friends and family are surprised that they no longer want to join them. That's the word he uses. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. This can be a very hard adjustment for new believers. Maybe you're a new Christian here, or you're a young person who's trying to live for Christ in the room. One of the challenges of living for Christ will mean that you will need to say no in any number of practices that others in the culture are participating in. We, in some way, we are in the world, but not of the world. We don't retreat from the world. We're in the world, but we say no to the world in any number of different ways. Obviously, in the stuff he's talking about here, just a, a sensual, uh, debased kind of party scene is what he's describing. Um, it, they probably, this had to do with certain uh, gatherings that they had, Bacchus and Saturnalia festivals. So there are certain festivals where this all went down. That's why he says lawless idolatry. And so they had to say no. And that's a difficult, it's difficult at times to say no to family and no to friends when you're especially a newer Christian and you've lived one way and now you're no longer living that way. Or you're starting as a young person, as a teenager, starting to go public with your faith. And that means, well, I can't do some of the things that other people are doing because I wanna glorify Christ with my life. And that's hard because we want, always want people to think well of us and to like us and to include us and to agree with us, and to cheer on our decisions. But these friends and these family members are not cheering on the decisions. They are surprised what happened to you. You're not hanging out with us anymore. You're, you're, you're not doing what we all are doing. We're continuing in it, but you're not. And it's not just that they're surprised, it's worse than that. Look what he says. They're surprised, verse four, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They speak ill of you. Now, it's interesting here that they, the maligning comes from their surprise. So you used to do this. You're not doing this. We can't believe it. And now we're going to talk bad about you. Do you know they're not coming to the party? Well, why not? Well, they're going to say something evil about you. They're going to gossip about you. They're going to slander you because you won't do the same thing. Now, if we're acting self-righteously, we deserve the pushback. We should get pushback if we're acting self-righteously. But if we're humbly, graciously, 
seeking to maintain relationship but not participate, saying no to certain things, uh, then we will still be maligned. There, There are times when simply following Jesus will actually bring conviction to an unbeliever. And it's nothing that you're doing, but, but, but they, they're convicted because of the choices you're making, and rather than respect you, with the conviction, they choose to malign you. Some of you are going to experience this Thanksgiving. That's some of what, it, it, it's, it's what you stand for, it's not who you are. They malign you just for what you are standing with, who, the one you are standing with, because you won't do what they do. In the book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, that's a must read. There's a few books that I think all Christians should read, Knowing God is One by J.I. Packer. But The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul is a book that was really, I found life-changing when I read it a number of years ago. It's a dated book. R.C. Sproul's now with the Lord. He's not living anymore. It's an older book, but it's written in a clear, clear manner. And he tells the story, he tells a story about Billy Graham that I found fascinating. He, he tells this story of, a, a golf pro who played on the pro tour. He doesn't tell us the name, and you'll see why in a minute. But this golf pro, anonymous tour pro, touring pro, uh, had a golf round with President Gerald Ford, Jack Nicklaus, and Billy Graham. If you don't know anything about golf, Jack Nicklaus was arguably one of the greatest golfers of all time. So this, the foursome, Billy Graham, Gerald Ford, Jack Nicklaus, and the unnamed golfer. And the unnamed golfer was thrilled to play with the president and with Billy Graham. He played with Jack Nicklaus on tours, so that wasn't a big deal. But to play with Gerald Ford and to play with Billy Graham was a big deal to him. And this is what Sproul writes. After the round of golf was finished, one of the other pros came up to this golfer and asked, hey, what was it like playing with the president and with Billy Graham? The pro unleashed a torrent of cursing and in a disgusted manner said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. With that, he turned on his heel and stormed off heading for the practice tee. His friend followed the angry pro to the practice tee. The pro took out his driver and started to beat out balls in a fury. His neck was crimson and it looked as if steam was coming out from his ears. His friend said nothing. He sat on a bench and watched. And after a few minutes, the anger of the pro was spent. He settled down. His friend said quietly to him, was Billy a little rough on you out there? The pro heaved an embarrassed sigh and said, no, he didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. (laughs) Astonishing. Billy Graham had said not a word about God, not a word about Jesus, not a word about religion, yet the pro had stormed away after the game, accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. How can we explain this? Well, it's really not difficult. Billy Graham didn't have to say a word. He didn't have to give a single sideward glance to make the pro feel uncomfortable. Billy Graham is so identified with religion, so associated with the things of God, that his very presence is enough to smother the wicked person who flees when no one pursues, Proverbs 28, 1. Luther was right. Pagans do tremble at the rustling of a leaf. They feel the hound of heaven breathing down their neck. 
They feel crowded by holiness, even if it's made present only by an imperfect, only partially sanctified human vessel. They're surprised you won't participate, and now they malign you. That happens. Now, our our tendency to be to look and say, it's not because I'm overly holy. We, We should look at where we have failed to represent Christ and be aware of that. But the reality is, it's The problem here that these people have is not with these new believers in Asia Minor. Their problem is with Jesus. And since these people are with Jesus who who proclaims exclusive rule and reign and demands all other gods bow, it calls them false and says life is found in no one else but him, people hate that. And because they identify with Jesus, Even if they say nothing, there is a surprise. Why aren't they? And then turning with a maligning, just like the touring pro did in his anger when things weren't going his way. What do we do when we're called to embrace suffering? How do we persevere through this? Well, we entrust it to the Lord and we expect resistance. We don't create a victim mentality. That happens far too often in the evangelical church. We don't create a victim mentality. Oftentimes we're expecting everybody to be against us when maybe they aren't even, but, but we entrust it to the Lord. We expect resistance, and we realize, verse 5, they will give an account. Verse 5, that's what he said. They're rejecting you. They malign you. So how do you respond? Verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We don't read that with glee. We don't celebrate their judgment like we can't wait for that. Rather, we pray for them. We pray for them, we love them, and we seek to bring the good news of Jesus to them. That after a while, we trust that, that we'll have an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ through our words and our actions. Again, this passage is relevant for numbers of us who head into a Thanksgiving that is challenging. I just talked to enough people every year to know. We started a number of years ago to pray about the holidays every year along these lines because we just had so many conversations with people who said, this is a challenging time with my parents. It's a challenging time with my siblings. It's a challenging time uh, with my adult children. It's a challenging time with my grandparents or whoever it is friends that we encounter. It's a challenging time. And I think this is helpful to know. Our calling is to be faithful to Jesus, not to answer everybody's challenge, not to debate and argue with everyone. Our calling is to represent Jesus faithfully and not judge people, but leave all judgment in God's hands and seek to listen, love, speak the good news of Jesus and represent him faithfully, expecting If it's not through the holidays, in some other context, at work or in your neighborhood, expecting resistance. This passage calls us to change our thinking, to arm ourselves with what the Bible teaches. 2 Timothy 3 says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15, 20, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. A big part of the battle is having the appropriate expectation because that gives us strength to prepare ourselves, to arm ourselves, 
to lean into Christ for strength, to lean into Christ, expecting resistance sets us up to lean into Christ. Listen, we tend to see resistance in our culture on a broad scale or individually in the cubicle next to us or at the Thanksgiving table. We tend to see resistance to our faith as this this shocking interruption to our lives. It is our lives. That's what the Bible says. This is what we signed up for. I don't pray for it. I don't love it. I'm not looking for it. I'm not trying to create it. It's, but it's just the reality. It is our lives in a fallen world. It is all over the Bible. But what is also all over the Bible is that our God is with us, that he rules and reigns, that the last day he will bring justice to all that those who resist and reject him will give an account to him, not to us, they will give an account to him for their lives. And in the meantime, we need to realize that they're not ultimately rejecting us any more than these people were rejecting the people of Asia Minor. They're ultimately bugged by God who's shoving religion down their throat is what they feel like. We just happen to be the person that represents him and knows him. It's a helpful thing to say, okay, The barbs are not really aimed at me. They're aimed at Jesus who took those on the cross to die for sinners. The call to suffer. The second thing is in verses 7 to 11. It's it's, it's called to the church. He calls us to not only expect resistance, but expecting resistance. Now go invest yourself deeply with the people of God. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter here writes with an urgency, doesn't he? Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. Now, what he's not meaning there is that he's not saying Jesus is coming tomorrow. This was 2,000 years ago. But when we think about the last days, we've been living in the last days since the day of Pentecost, really. It just means that on the, um, on the agenda, on the timeline of salvation history, all the major events have happened. We had creation and fall. Uh, we had the people of Israel that looked forward to Christ. We had Christ's life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the church, Acts 2. And the next thing, the next event on the timeline is the return of Christ. And so the end of all things, we're to live ready for the return of Christ. It means because time is short, because the next event is the return of Christ, we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded. He's saying to them, don't live like you used to. By God's grace, have self-control. Be sober-minded. It it actually means be clear-headed. Be clear-headed so for the sake of your prayers, for the sake of your prayers. Challenge and resistance leads us to prayer. It leads us to be sober-minded about the reality, the urgency of the gospel, the reality of what it means to follow Christ, the reality of judgment, heaven and hell. These realities are before us when we believe 
that we're living in the last times. And so that calls us to be sober-minded so that we can pray, he says. Don't be looking for the escapes of idolatry, drinking parties, sensuality, sexual sin, all that stuff he was talking about before. Don't be looking for those of his escapes to sort of dull your awareness, dull your alertness to the end times. Rather, be aware of the end times, be self-controlled, and pray. And then he says, pursue God's people. It's, it's, it's hot out there. It's getting more heated. So you need to come in and pursue God's people is what he says. And he gives three ways to pursue God's people. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He says, love one another, the people of God, the church, those you're joined to. As you feel the culture's resistance, more and more be drawn to love one another. Take a sincere interest, a genuine care in others. The church is to be a refuge from the world, not a refuge in the sense that we escape. So we're not all moving up to a mountain somewhere and living in a commune so we have no connection with the world. That's not what he's saying. Stay in the world, but the church is a place where we can love one another and it actually feels like a refuge. That to come and gather on Sundays, and maybe even more particularly, to gather in your small group in a living room, that's to be a time where we actually feel relief and refuge and the comfort and strength of the Holy Spirit as we gather with God's people and lean on one another and open up our lives and strengthen one another, uh, help one another. It's, it's where we come home. Church is home. It is the, the, a family of, we sang a song this morning, a family of grace. I think that was one of the lines. I didn't see that till today, but it's a family of grace. But it is a family with all the quirks and challenges and sins and annoying habits and disappointments of our other family. That's in the church as well. So it's, it's challenging but it is to be a comfort. We're to love his family, and he says our love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, how does loving one another cover sin? Doesn't only the blood of Jesus cover sin? Well, ultimately, yes, only the blood of Jesus atones for our sins. But, there, but here the implication is that we cover sin by love. How do we do that? Through forgiveness. Through forgiveness, we cover one another's sins Um, because we extend the same mercy to one another that Christ extends to us. Love one another because love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love doesn't harbor unforgiveness. Love doesn't harbor bitterness. And thus, thus love covers a multitude of sins by forgiving in the same way that we are forgiven. Christians should be the hardest people in the world to offend because our outward orientation is love. And yet many of us have a trigger to get offended really quickly, really quickly. But that's not loving. Now, there are times when there are genuine offenses. uh, And when there are, when there's genuine grievances, love means that we get together with a person, we present how we were hurt by their words or their actions, and we talk it through, we extend forgiveness. And that's covering sin as well, through forgiveness and reconciliation. It's not highlighting sin. It's not holding people uh, to their sins when they genuinely repent and ask forgiveness. It's, it's covering. Sin is what it ultimately is. When living on the margins, think about their culture. It must feel like their enemies are looking for them to mess up, looking for them to slip up and fail so they can celebrate their failure. Okay, you won't come with us 
out to the drunken orgy like you used to, so you won't join us for that. They're looking. Oh, but look what you did, you hypocrite. I thought you were too good for that. Looking for any sin to highlight and rub in their face, but the church is totally different It is a family of forgiveness. To gather with the people of God is to celebrate Christ's forgiveness and our forgiveness of one another. So we love one another, not holding our sins against each other, but covering them with love. Secondly, he says, show hospitality, verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In Peter's day, hospitality was often uh, housing a stranger. Uh, while they were, you know, out of town. Some of the inns were maybe not safe and various things. But here, that's probably not what he's talking about. That, that might relate, a visiting missionary or visiting Christians to house them or something. That, that might relate. But what, what he's really talking about is showing hospitality to one another. He's saying, those of you in the church, show hospitality. Open your lives to one another. Open your homes. If you have a home or an apartment, open them to one another, open your wallet to one another, open your calendar to one another, show hospitality. Now they, they didn't have church building like this. Uh, they met in homes. And so it meant open your home so the people of God can gather. That was part of what they did, but do it without grumbling. Why? Because back then, just as it is now, it's a lot of work to show hospitality. And I don't know about you, but in our family, Some of the most historic, greatest grumbling and arguing in the history of our families happened while we're getting ready for company. I don't know about you, but quit, throw everything in the closet and pick it all up. And I told you, oh, hey, welcome. How are you guys doing? (laughs) I remember this time, this time one year, uh, I I remember, uh, where's Rob? I saw Rob over here. I remember one time, oh yeah, Rob and Michelle, you remember this, coming to our house for a Christmas party and Ginger and I were in a snit just going at it and they were the first people at the party and walked in and sort of caught us. But that's, that's we were able to be real with them. Oh yeah, you kind of walked in on us arguing because we're getting ready to love you and serve you. <laughs> we love you, we just don't love one another, but we love you. So in this moment, we do love one another. But do you see what I'm saying? So don't complain, but make the extension. And can I say that I don't know that there is anything that makes the church a refuge from the suffering in the culture. I don't know what makes the church a greater refuge than warm hospitality. Welcome. We have an opportunity to extend that on Sunday mornings. New people coming in here, extending a welcome to others. Come on in. Do you, have, is your first time, how can we get to know you? How can, this is our home. You say, well, I've only been here six months. Well, you've been here six months longer than they have. And do you remember what it was like when you walked in six months ago? Well, I've been here 10 years and I need to connect with the people I know and my friends. Welcome the stranger. Welcome the new person. And not only invite them here and, and, and show welcome in our homes for community groups, but the lifestyle of hospitality. During the week is so important. Last, last Sunday, Ginger and I had the privilege to go to someone's house in the church Family invited us over, invited a number of folks over. And what I found out was that they do this all the time on Sundays. They just have groups of people over, just groups of people for food, hanging out, nothing religious about it. It wasn't a community group. It was just being together, getting to know one another. And that is so vital. That 
We want that to happen all over the life of the church. That is so vital just to have a family, have a single, have a group over. Or if you don't have a place where that's convenient for you to do, invite them out to coffee or out for a meal or out to for the park, our park starting you know, soon, if it ever stops raining. Uh, but they can finish up. But you know, just invite them out to hang out. There are so many new people in our church. I, I, I don't know the numbers. I mean, I saw it, but I want to guess that a third of our church has arrived here in the last year and a half, something like that, a third of Sunday morning attenders. So there's so many new people, and the only way we will be a refuge for one another is if we know one another. And the only way we know one another is by show hospitality without grumbling. And if you grumble, do it anyway and just repent, okay? So <laughs> just repent and ask forgiveness. Last thing, serve others with your gifts. Verse 10, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Do you see what he's saying? You're going to suffer. Have the same mind of Christ. Be prepared to suffer. Here's all these situations where people, the church is being rejected. So come together. What do you do? Love one another. Show hospitality to one another. And then invest your gifts. Invest your ability to building up the church. He gives two kinds of gifts. I love it. It's just really broad. It's not figure out your gift, worry about your gift, don't do anything until you figure out your gift. He just says, if you've got a gift of, uh, you know, if, you've, if your gift involves uh, speaking, well, speak as if it's the oracles of God. That is, take it seriously. Use your gift to build up. If you got, that is, if you've got a gift of leadership, of counseling, of gift of encouragement, a gift of exhortation, a gift of teaching. Back there, it's filled with people teaching children right now. Use your gifts and, and take it serious like this is the word of God coming through you. Build up other people by how you speak. And secondly, is if it's serving, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength God supplies. So ask God to empower you to serve others, to build up the church so that the church is strengthened. Why does the church need to be strengthened? Because the people of God are on the margins and there needs to be a place where we're recharged, where we're strengthened, where we know somebody has our back. If our boss doesn't have our back, I know the guy in the community group has my back. If our family has rejected us, I know my friend in the community group has not rejected me and will weep with me over that rejection and will pray for me. I know when I'm fearful of that taking a stand for Jesus that there's someone else who shares my fear and will encourage me with prayer and help me, invite me to their home. Use your gifts to build up the church is what he is saying because the church is so important. The church is always important. Gathering with the people of God is always important. But in times where people are being persecuted, it's especially important that we have a corporate community witness together of an alternative lifestyle. Why are we not doing the things we used to do? They could say, come and see. We've got a totally different life now, and it's amazing. We forgive one another. We love one another. We welcome one another without seeking to get something from someone else. It's a community of grace and forgiveness. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And they have to invest their lives in building that so there's an alternative in a dark world. God has a plan for his people, and it's a good plan. He has called us to suffer for his glory, but he promises to be with us, to strengthen us, to change us, and he's given us a people to live out this life with. 
so that we can be clear-headed for prayer, realizing the days are short, the time is short. We can love one another, extending forgiveness and mercy. When, well, is it going to be difficult? Yes. You don't have to forgive if it's easy. It's only when it's difficult. It's going to be difficult in here too, but there's, God's with us, and he's gracious, and he's helping us. He's called us to open our homes and our hearts to one another. He's called us to, he's given us gifts and called us to use those gifts to speak to one another and help one another, serve one another, show mercy to one another, encourage one another. He promises to strengthen us. Why does he give us all this? Why, why does he glorify himself through our suffering? Why does he build us up through the people of God? Well, it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Never forget why we suffer. Whatever suffering we experience, it's, it's for the sake of Christ that we might take our pain and our challenges and our difficulty and we might offer them to worship in worship to him, saying, Lord, enable me to represent you in this difficulty. That's how we represent Christ best. I don't just think it's through having this tremendous, wonderful, problem-free, pain-free rich, young, healthy, gorgeous life that we demonstrate, isn't God good? That's what our culture thinks. But if you want to see God's goodness, you see it in the broken person who has a smile on their face, glorifying God, extending themselves to serve others, even in their own suffering. That's powerful. That's beautiful. That's unknown <laughs> outside of the people of God. God is so kind to us. Why the church matters? Because of Jesus. Why does our testimony matter? Because of Jesus. Why does holiness matter? Because of Jesus. And we bring these things to him as we receive communion this morning. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.